his son in human form. I think at times we can just um, not even comprehend or start to comprehend the significance of what's happening when we have part of the triune God being sent to earth to walk amongst mankind. So this week that was an impact to me to actually focus on the significance of what God had really done in sending Jesus. And thirdly, I couldn't help but um, praise the fact that there's good news, salvation through Jesus Christ, and it has come for everyone. Salvation isn't for everyone. You don't have to be a certain race. You don't have to be a certain type of person. You don't even have to be a good person. That salvation is for you. It's a price that's been paid. So as we look at today's message, and um, it's been titled God's Beloved Son in Chapter 2 of the Behold Book. And what I like about this Behold book too is it focuses on at times the wonder of some of these amazing aspects in the New Testament that we read about Jesus. There are lots of wonders in this world that we can look at as part of creation and they're incredible. But the wonder of what has happened here where we have God's Son being sent, God's beloved Son. So we're going to now start to look, move forward a little bit in this, um, in this lifespan of Jesus and look at some of the foundational significance of last week's focus points, and then we're going to build on that today. So we're going to attempt to appreciate this wonder, and I want us to understand and appreciate the gravity of what it is for a sovereign God, a creator of the universe, to send his son, part of him, part of the Trinity, down to here on earth and walk amongst mankind. In particular, Jesus this sent son of the one true God will undoubtedly will have trouble to comprehend what is really going on here. We know about this story and we've probably read it heaps of times and we're totally aware that Jesus is the son of God. But sometimes we can miss the point around holiness and majesty and what's really happening here, that this son of God entered this world. I want to grab your Bibles now and let's turn to Luke. Luke chapter 1, you might start it. And um, I'm going to start at verse 76. Someone grab me a drink of water if that's all right, just um, a little bit. I'm not in a rush for it, but I reckon I'm getting dry in the mouth. So Luke 1 and verse 76. Now, I'm starting to build a picture here. And in, in chapter 2 of the, this Behold book, um, we start to look at the significance of John the Baptist and who John the Baptist is in this story, in this process. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on John the Baptist, but I just want to start to build a picture. So who is this John the Baptist? Well, he was born of Zechariah. So in verse 76 of Luke chapter 1, it says, And you, my child, will be called a prophet. This is Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, talking about his son to be born. You'll be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord. That is, in, in other words, the Holy Spirit has given him a message that John is going to go on before Jesus, go on before the Lord to prepare a way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. So what's John the Baptist do? What's his purpose here? So it's part of Zechariah's prophecy is what we just read. Given, he was given by the Holy Spirit. Thanks, mate. So, he was given by the Holy Spirit in regarding 
his son, John the Baptist. So this has set the stage, if you like, for the ministry of John and going forward as in preparing a way for Jesus. So the key points here, just to remember about John the Baptist, because we'll move on from him fairly quickly. But he was called. He's going to go before the Lord Jesus. He's going to prepare the way. And he's preparing the way to give, by giving the people knowledge of salvation that this Jesus will bring. So we've looked at a little bit. We just touched on the significance of John the Baptist and where he is in the life of Jesus in going before Jesus. But that's just a small part of what we want to talk about today. Turn your Bibles to chapter 3 of Mark, Matthew and go to about verse 11. So John goes before Jesus and he's starting to prepare a way. But in Matthew chapter 3, we'll start to understand a little bit more about the significance of what John is doing and this connection with Christ. So Matthew 3 verse 11 says, I, this is John speaking here, I baptise you with water for repentance. So there's baptism occurring here. This is before he's actually recognised who Jesus is as Messiah, that is. So I baptise you with water for repentance. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I am, whose sandals I'm not even fit to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So just... We see here that John is baptising Jews as they were choosing to repent to God of their sins and asking them to forgive of their sins. And this baptism, if you like, is bearing witness to a change of character and a change of attitude in their life and they're recognising that God can forgive them their sins. So these baptisms were occurring. But at the same time, John was acknowledging that there was a person who's coming and um, who's going to be of extreme significance in the life of um, mankind, and this was Jesus. So he's more powerful than John. John is defining Jesus as going to be far more powerful than him. It says that there. And also, too, I think John wants us to appreciate the significance of who Christ is. So what's the point of having this scenario about the sandals? What's it, what's it really mean? I, I think we can understand or we can recognise and take from this that taking someone's sandals off is a fairly... Um, menial task, a fairly low task for probably a servant of someone. So if I was in some sort of position of status and, um, and I had a servant and there may be particular situations where the servant would take off my sandals, it's a sign of respect for that status. But here's John saying, well, I'm not even worthy of this, this Jesus, this one who's to come, I might even be worthy of um, removing his sandals or holding his sandals or carry his sandals. What's John trying to signify here? What, what are we learning out of this? Well, straight, straight away we can start to contemplate there's a setting where John is honouring Jesus. John is giving Jesus a place above everyone here in this world. So don't forget, Jesus has come down in human form in, in mankind. So for us, it's, it's all of a sudden start to easily misrepresent who Jesus really is. But John wants to identify the significant status and the majesty of Jesus. And he wants that and he's implying that through the fact that, look, I'm not even worthy to remove this guy's sandals. You know, this is the position that John is placing Jesus at. 
John, John demonstrates that the power that Jesus has compared to him is much greater. And he's emphasising this through this analogy, through this imagery of not even being able to remove the sandals of Christ or being unworthy. John's identifying very culturally with the listeners of that, that day. On this day and age in our Western contemporary world, we don't go removing shoes off people. We don't have status and rank in, in our culture. But it was very important that John was identifying with the listeners this menial task of removing sandals somewhat set the, um, set the understanding that John wanted. Because people looked up to John. People followed John. And um, John was saying, hang on, you know, this guy is to come. This Jesus is much more powerful than I. I'm not worthy to even remove or carry his sandals. A warning I thought for us here, um, and um, I think it was shared in that book in chapter 2, and it really impacted me this week, was um, when was the last time you viewed Jesus that way? When's the last time you gave Jesus that level of honour in your life? Oh, wow. When I read that, I thought, you know, that's so true. Even as Christians, even as mature Christians, I mean, we sang a song. There's nothing wrong with that song. Thanks for that song, Tim. What a friend we have in Jesus. But, you know, Jesus is much more than just a friend much more than just a friend. That identifies a relationship that we can have, a close relationship, and that's something that we can comprehend. That's why the song said, we have a friend, and we can comprehend what a good friend is like. But really, the the majesty and the sovereignty that Jesus has, we can't even remove his sandals. He's so far removed from who we are. And this is the honour that we have to give Jesus at times and God in our life. Do we give that or does God just get what is left over? Does Jesus just get what's left over in our life? I've got so many important things to do. Then there's Jesus. But hang on. When was the last time you viewed Jesus in that way where you said, Lord, I'm not even worthy to remove your sandals. I need to stop and worship you and give you rightly and justly the honour that you deserve. Do we do that? Let's move along to Matthew chapter 3. We're still in that. We're looking at verse 13. So just to go back a little bit, John was saying he was baptising for repentance and there was someone to come after him and it's going to be Jesus. He's going to be more powerful. John gives the people a perspective of his majesty by that, that imagery of not being able to remove his sandals or not being worthy. This guy, Jesus, he's going to come and baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So let's turn to 13. Jesus, then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to be baptised by John. But John tried to deter him by saying, I, I don't need to be baptised by you. Um, and, and you come to me. Hang on. So the John's already recognising that. Hang on. This, this Jesus has come with majesty and honour and the sovereignty that he deserves. And and I'm not going to baptise Jesus. But what's Jesus saying? Verse 15. Jesus replied, let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this, to fulfil all righteousness, my version says. So in other words, accomplish God's plan, God's mission. God wanted Jesus to be baptised in this way. Let's keep reading. Verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptised, he went up out of the water 
at that moment, the heavens opened. Can you imagine that? Like people around here, the heavens opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. That's Jesus. Verse 17, and a voice came from heaven. And can you imagine this voice? Can you imagine the majesty of this voice when God says, this is my beloved son whom I love and I'm well pleased. This is my beloved son whom I love and I'm well pleased. So we, we start to understand now who God says Jesus is. God said Jesus is his son. He's pleased in him and he loves him. Jesus chooses to be baptised, you know, and I, I, I thought through this act a bit this week and um, I thought it was interesting. I thought, why, why does Jesus choose to be baptised? And some thoughts came to my mind and, um, you know, the, these are just thoughts. They may not be totally theologically correct, so if you want to talk to me about them later, feel free. But, you know, I thought that maybe, maybe Jesus was confessing sin on behalf of all mankind, not himself, because Jesus had no sin. Maybe Jesus was confessing sin on behalf of all mankind. Because I thought about in the Old Testament, remember Moses and Ezra and Nehemiah confessed sin on behalf of the world and their nation. Maybe Jesus was confessing sin on behalf of mankind. Not sure. Maybe he was supporting John in the ministry that John was doing. Certainly inaugurated his public ministry. It was certainly initiation of the public ministry of Christ. Maybe he was identifying with those repentant people of God already who, who baptised themselves before him. But despite what it may have signified, verse 17, again, in front of the onlookers, this voice came from heaven and declared, Behold, the Son of God, whom I love, whom I'm, I'm well pleased. I think that's the main point that we need to take away from this point, from this baptism, of this recognition that God the Father endorses his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and in the ministry that is before him. So despite what I just said, verse 17 is the one that you need to hang on to, of the purpose and process of Jesus accomplishing and working through the plan and the mission of God that God has set before him, and he's been obedient. Baptism out of obedience. So three times I can think of in the New Testament, maybe some others may have some more, where God audibly speaks. Audibly speaks quite a bit in the Old Testament, but New Testament, we, I can think of three. It's right now where at his baptism, he says, my beloved son. Secondly, I can think of was um, the transfiguration where he says, my son, I'm pleased. Listen to him. Um, and thirdly, at the last week of Jesus' life, uh, God says, I've glorified your name and I will do it again. So what does John who does John say Jesus is then? Let's, let's see his perspective. Turn with me to John chapter 1, verse 29. John 1, verse 29. The next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. This is, a, this is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptising with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. 
This again reinforces the purpose of John. Going before God, for Jesus I should say, baptising and making a way for Jesus so that he might be revealed to Israel. Let's read verse 32. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven. Again, we, we, this testimony again that we've, we've already read, come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptise him with water, that would be either God or the work of the Holy Spirit in John's life. Um, the man who you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptise you with fire. Verse 34 closes off, bookends this, I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. So John again testifies that this is the Son of God. We have God himself say, this is my beloved Son, whom I love, who I am well pleased. We also now have John again confirming through the Holy Spirit, I testify that this is the Son of God, starting to build this picture, picture now. But let's consider the earliest statement. I want to have a look at John's statement when he says, look, the lamb, the lamb of God. I'd imagine he may have used this imagery um, such as a lamb because it was so relatable to Jewish people at that time. In everyday life, a lamb was sacrificed morning and evening in the temple. As an example, the Jewish community would have been aware of the history surrounding this animal and the, I suppose, how the animal was ultimately used for a sacrifice, a substitutional sacrifice in throughout the history of the Old Testament. What maybe came to their mind, maybe the first thing came to mind was the lamb that was sacrificed by Abraham. Do you recall a, a story, an account with Abraham and Isaac? It was actually, it was actually a, a bit of a test for Abraham, for, for God to see where he really placed God in his life, for God to see that Abraham placed God first in his life. So he's taking his son Isaac up this, up this mountain. And God had told him to take his son's life as a sacrifice. Can you imagine that? I, I can't. I can imagine. No, I can't imagine. <laughs> I just can't imagine having to go through with that. They get to the, they get to the end of the mountain. Even Isaac, as a, as a young man, he's been around Jewish culture enough to know, hey, Dad, where, where, where's, the, where's the lamb? We've got the gear, we've got the fire, we've got the kindling, we've got the weapon of choice. Where's the, where's the lamb? We know that the rest of the story is that God provides a lamb. God provides a lamb. And so the boy didn't have to be sacrificed. Imagine the joy for Abraham not to have to go through with that. So there's an example that the Jewish community of those times thought, Lamb of God, hang on, what's this lamb? Lamb's a sacrifice. I know this story where God provided a lamb. So someone could have freedom, could have life. Maybe they thought of the Passover lamb. You know, the Passover lamb had to be killed so Israel's firstborn would be saved. And not only the firstborn, but the, the Jews could have freedom from slavery. From their, from their enemies. You know, another lamb had to be killed, to be sacrificed so that people may live. People may live. Maybe they knew of, they would have known the book of Isaiah uh, very well. It's probably um, something uh, Jewish people would have recited quite often. 
They might have been thinking of where Isaiah talks about the Messiah, this Messiah that they're waiting on. Ultimately, this Messiah, unbeknownst to them, is this Jesus. This is the Jesus that John's trying to point them to. So this even Isaiah talks about this Messiah that will suffer at the injustice and hands of mankind. Isaiah compares the suffering to that of a lamb going to be slaughtered, to be sacrificed. You start to see the relationship why John calls Jesus the Lamb of God. So strange enough, we're going to move on now to Jesus' temptation. So move across now to Matthew chapter 4. So we've looked at a little bit briefly, just due to time, we looked at briefly that who this John the Baptist was, his mission and his purpose. We've looked at quickly the fact that God endorsed Jesus as his beloved son, whom I love, whom I'm well pleased. John also endorses Christ, Jesus. And now Jesus is moving, continuing in his ministry in preparation for his public ministry. God sends Jesus to be tempted. I'm just going to quickly read John 4 verses 1 to 11. It won't take too long. Oh, Matthew, goodness me. Yeah, if we go to the right section, sorry about, sorry about that, guys. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert. Notice the Holy Spirit is leading a lot. The Holy Spirit led Zechariah to share about the child being born, which is John the Baptist. The Holy Spirit also convinced John the Baptist to be baptising and be looking out and be preparing a way for Jesus. And here now the spirit leads Jesus into the desert. So then the Jesus was led into the, by the spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Can you imagine that? The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Verse 5, then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift, up their, lift you up in their hands so that you would not even strike your foot against a stone. Verse 7, Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendour. All of this I give to you, he said, if you only bow down and worship me. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, away with me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Up to this point, we have recalled that the Father, or God, is starting a public seeing his son doing his public ministry and is pleased with his son. He's now being led into the desert as a test. There are three recorded accounts that we just read of the temptations, one around hunger, one around proving that God is powerful and that, you know, God would just perform on request. There was another temptation, that was the devil offers everything. And what we just read in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, is an account of all those things. Every time Jesus is tempted, it is recorded that he uses scripture to counteract Satan. 
How important is it for us to recognise with the power of God's word and to be in God's word regularly to counteract these temptations in our own life? Yeah. And um, sadly, at times, we paid little attention, little attention to God's word. And I've been through phases in my life where I've spent little time in God's word because sometimes you tend to go off your memory bank. You know, you tend to go off, you know, stuff that you've learned over the years. You know, sadly, you can actually rely on songs. Songs are great, but songs are not necessarily God's word. Um, and Satan uses these opportunities, as he do- did with Jesus, because he wanted to cause Jesus to deviate from the plan that God had for him. That was really it. He wanted to cause Jesus to separate in the right relationship that he had with the Father through bowing down before him. Satan wanted to use these opportunities to disrupt God's plan. You know what? He does the same for you and me. If we choose to give in to Satan, if we choose to worship Satan and give in to him in areas of our lives, we too are going to fall short. You know what? The most important thing to remember here is this, this small these small few verses helps us recognise that Jesus succeeded in not failing or falling into Satan's temptation and deception. And two important truths come out. It's firstly, that it reminds us that there is the humanity of Christ, that it reminds us that God sent his son as a man into this world and, and when we read this temptation, this, this account of the temptation, we see that these things, that he was hungry. You know, he, he was actually tempted like you and I. He was human, but he wasn't sinful human. There's a difference. So it, brought out, it brought, brings out the humanity of Christ, but secondly, it brings out the divine success that Jesus had by not giving in to Satan. You know, the first Adam, and we shared about this last week, the first Adam fell to sin, did he not? The second Adam, Jesus succeeded, didn't, was not overcome by sin, did not give in to sin. Although Jesus is fully God, he is also fully man. He knew that what it was to be hungry, he knew what it was to need sleep, and ultimately he knew what it was to be tempted away from God's plan. And um, that happens to us all the time. Despite Jesus being fully aware of the pain and suffering that he had ahead of him, He decided to stay on track for God, honour his father who he loved and stay close to the plan and on the plan that God had given him. Hebrews 4, just quickly turn with me to Hebrews 4, it gives a little bit of an insight into the fact that he was fully human but not sinfully human. Hebrews chapter 4 and verses 14 to 15. Verse 14, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Now, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weakness. So there's a humanity aspect. Jesus can sympathise with our weakness. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are tempted, yet was without sin. So we have this humanity of Christ that we see in the temptation and we actually see that throughout Scripture and throughout the New Testament. 
We also see the divine success that Christ had in overcoming the evil one um, and the devil. Remember, he was fully human, but he was not sinful human. So in reflection and in closing um, today, there's some things I want us to, um, to um, I suppose, be challenged by, to, to contemplate on. And um, there's a few of them. I ask these questions of you and I ask them of myself as well. Do I really give Jesus the reverence he deserves? Yeah. Remember John's statement about the sandals? Um, you know, it's so easy to forget who Jesus really is in our lives. You know, we just tend to go along with the show and what a friend we have in Jesus, great song, but just meaning that it's more to it than just that relationship of a friendship. He is, he is holy. We don't begin to understand the holiness. When you look at the Old Testament, when you want to start to understand and appreciate the holiness of God, that is it, and you can see it later in the Transfiguration. So Jesus is holy. Do I really give him the reverence he deserves in my life? Now, what does that look like for you? What does reverence look like to you? Does it mean, do I give him time through the week? Do I just give him time on Sunday? Do I give him time daily? You know, how do I honour Jesus in my life? How do I honour the relationship that I have with Christ? Because when I give my life to Christ, I say I'm going to put him first in my life. It means all of it, not just departmentalise. It's not just this bit and that bit and that bit. It's all of it. Put him first in our lives. It's not easy but it's all of it. Do I appreciate this sacrifice that Jesus gave in my place, this lamb of God? Again, the story of Abraham can, is probably an easy way to appreciate how he must have felt when the lamb was substituted for his son Isaac. It's probably the closest thing that we in our humanity can have to actually start to appreciate the substitutional sacrifice that Christ was for mankind. So in knowing that and with the heaviness of that impressing upon our heart, how do, I, how do I live my life in response to that? When I consider myself regards to temptations in my life, I can think of many, many times where I've given into Satan for far, far less than what Jesus was offered. Jesus was offered in the last temptation they recorded was he was offered everything you know, I've given in to much smaller than everything, and I'm sure you have as well. What does it look like for you? Do you give in when it comes to leisure, hobbies, career path, relationships, money, success? The list goes on. There's lots of areas in our lives that we can give in and bow the knee to Satan. There's lots of things that we can give up for far less than what Jesus was offered. Just as with Jesus, we too will be tempted by Satan to move away ultimately from God's plan for our lives and from worshipping him. There's nothing particularly wrong with the things that I've just spoken about or mentioned about with leisure, hobbies, career plans, relationships, money, success. You know what? God blesses and chooses to bless us with these things differently in different proportions anyway. But it's how we navigate these decisions or how we navigate these persuasions and keep God's plans and keep God's majesty at the forefront of our lives. Satan is always going to be after us to surrender to him. Be careful giving Satan any leeway in your life. 
it's like a small wedge. Once you start driving that wedge in, it can get broader and broader and broader. If this is God and my relationship with God, every time I take a small step, one small step, so each step is only small, I'm only just giving in a little bit. After so long, look how far I am away from God. It's so true. It's um, so true. We need to give Jesus the reverence he deserves. We need to give God his rightful place. We need to appreciate the sacrifice that Jesus gave for each one of us, especially as a believer. It's easy just to give our life to Christ and then just roll on. But no, it needs to be more than that. Just in closing now, Jesus refused to treasure anything or anyone more than his heavenly father. I love this statement. Say it again, Jesus refused to treasure anything or anyone more than he treasured his heavenly father. How does that compare to your relationship with God? If you're a believer, how does that compare? We've got a long way to go. I know that. What is it to follow Jesus? Does this sound like me or you? John the Baptist pointed everyone he knew to Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't, couldn't we have a life that's like that, that each day I'm thinking, who can I point to Jesus? That was John. John encar- God encourages us in this passage that we're reading to behold and take note of this Jesus, his beloved son. Jesus is our final, our perfect and our once for all sacrifice for a sinful world. And behold and take notice of what God can be doing in your life. Let's pray. God, you said that this is your beloved son whom you are well pleased. Lord, help us to take account of our lives. Help us to be listening to your Holy Spirit this morning. Lord, if you're convicting us to give our life to you or you're convicting us to correct our life, to be on track with you. Lord, help us to take notice and behold. Um, Lord, be with, us, be with us, I pray. Lord, just as we close off this morning, Lord, may your Holy Spirit be speaking to us intently about where we need to place you in our life, that we need to understand the reverence that you deserve, the majesty that you deserve, Lord, and we need to recognise the attack of the evil one. Lord, and we must recognise, help us recognise to put you first. Amen.